ClickZ podcast with Tim Flagg. Insight, opinion and advice from the leading practitioners in digital marketing and e-commerce. The word programmatic will probably just disappear. Like the vast majority of digital ads will be and are being transacted sort of programmatically. And it'll just be the new normal. This is the ClickZ Digital Marketing Podcast, and I'll be talking to James Patterson about data-driven marketing, creating more transparency, the evolution of programmatic advertising, and the importance of maintaining a free ad-funded web. James Patterson is the VP of Client Services for EMEA and Global Operations at The Trade Desk, one of the largest demand-side platforms in the world. He manages all operational aspects of the client services team in the region and previously served as the general manager for the UK, one of the company's first employees outside the US. And he spent the last two years in New York as VP of Global Operations. Before joining the trade desk, James spent about nine years working in the wider digital advertising industry, including Big Mouth Media, Mediacom, Havas and Kenshu. So James, it's a pleasure to have you here on the ClickZ podcast today. And I'm really interested to find out more about the trade desk and specifically some of the projects that you've been working on there. It's probably a name which many of us have heard of. It's a big player in the market. Um, But I wonder whether we could just start off by finding out a bit more about you. And maybe you could just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit more about your career and what have been the biggest challenges you faced in your career. Yeah, of course. Hello, and thanks for having me on the podcast. Looking forward to discussing everything. Um, Yeah, so I started my advertising career at a company called eSpotting in 2004, about 15, 16 years ago, and not, most people wouldn't, a lot of people wouldn't have heard of eSpotting, but eSpotting was one of the first companies, if not the first, to do paid search, which was then called pay-per-click. And it was a pretty groundbreaking thing because for the first time, ads could be shown to individuals directly sort of based on their intent. They were actually saying, I want to look at this thing and I'm interested in buying this particular product. Um, and they type, you know, and, and that's, that's amazing for advertisers because it actually... Uh, allowed them to get attention from 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 cons- consumers and advertisers bid for that person's attention. It was the same dynamic where you bid for a person, uh, you bid for a keyword, and that person then clicks on it. Um, it wasn't very complex. It was there was no bidding algorithms, no header bidding, no auction dynamics to speak of. It's just you paid what you bid. Um, it's measured by CTR and invariably, and we attempted in some ways to track users to some sort of action. Um, it was really really simple. And we sp- we actually spent a lot of our time refunding clients because they accidentally put 20 quid in per click than 20 pence. <laughs> uh, so, you know, it was that simple. Um, there was two other tech companies in the market at that time. Um, one called Overture, which was subsequently bought by Yahoo to become their paid search arm. Um, and a little other search engine called Google. And the rest is history, really. I think I think on the paid search side of things, they definitely won. I think that's pretty safe to say. Um, but it's, it, it was sort of the birth of transparency, which is why it was so interesting. It was the first time, as I said, that advertisers could see intent from users and then target them with specific advertising. Um, for the following seven years, I worked at various agencies, um, with mainly in paid search, social display, and, a, and, and some planning as well. And it really gave me a good understanding of brands and their needs and just how agency planning processes worked as well. Um, and fast forward to now, to 2019, it's a completely different world. Marketers now have so much data at their disposal. There's so many ways to gain insights and learn about their consumers um, and so many ways to target them as well. Um, I guess you, you know, one of the highlights of my career was joining the trade desk. Uh, a few other people and I 
were the first employees outside of North America. Um, I was the GM of the UK for three or four years, and I moved out to New York um, to our New York office to run our global operations organization. And I've just returned, um, actually, uh, back to the UK office to continue my operations responsibilities and to manage our amazing 100-person strong European client services team. And yeah, just to see the company uh, and the programmatic industry in general scale at the speed has been really, really amazing. Uh, I've been the company for six years now. We've just celebrated our 10-year anniversary and what's really exciting is there's so much more to come um, from the trade desk and just from the industry in general and that's the really exciting thing about the industry there's so much opportunity in front of us the, for the trade desk and other tech companies for marketers for publishers for consumers and for, for everyone really well that's been a, a great overview there and very interesting career you've had you mentioned a number of different areas there which we're going to unpack as we get into the podcast but I wonder whether we could just um, focus on transparency because that is a big issue for all advertisers at the moment Um, and you mentioned transparency in in your career overview then. Um, Why do you think transparency is such a big topic this year and what's caused this lack of transparency which we see in the industry? There's a few reasons. Um, the inherent reason is just the complexity of digital advertising in general in the supply chain. Um, it, I think that's the root cause. Um, and transparency is kind of a double-edged sword. You know, as, as I said, sort of 15, 16 years ago when paid search was growing, it was the first time we had any type of transparency. And, and, and then advertisers and marketers, rightly so, want more and more and more. And the more transparent and more, di- more sort of granular you get with, with data, the more it gets questioned, the more, the more, uh, the more people want to know. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's not really, you know, the vast majority of players aren't intentionally setting out to deceive their customers. I, I genuinely believe that. There's, many find it hard to provide clear sort of exact pictures of where, the, where their data is coming from, from a technology perspective. But I don't think there's very many players in the, in, the, in the marketplace who are intentionally trying to deceive. It's a big challenge. And we're, you know, we at the Trade Desk, are, you know, we built our company uh, on an open and independent marketplace. And we, we put transparent kind of at the core of our business. And it hasn't changed really. Because uh, we're independent, as in we're buy side only. We don't have any sort of owned and operated inventory or, or data supply sources. Um, we're transparent across the whole kind of ecosystem. Um, and we're ambassadors for, tra- for a transparency. Um, we try to lead by example. But like I said, I, I really think it's a, a very small minority of players who are deliberately trying to, you know, mask and malpractice uh, for profit only. It's important that the broader industry is tarnished, you know, not kind of tarnished with that whole brush. Do you think that transparency also means the fact that there's so many middlemen within ad tech as well? Um, you know, we see a lot of brands now wanting to bring things in-house because they want to get rid of those middlemen and they want to have more visibility on how their ad budgets are being spent. Uh, but is that what you cover with, uh, under transparency as well, that whole concept of in-housing? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely um, think there's a lot of work to be done on the supply chain, you know, scrutinising that, making sure that everyone knows where their inventory is coming from. But, you know, record levels of spend are being pushed into programmatic advertising. It's continuing to grow across Europe, across the world. And it's natural that with increased investment comes increased concern with, you know, sort of scrutiny around issues like brand safety and ad fraud and things like that. Um, we've seen some brands in, in sort of experiment within housing. Um, very few have done it very successfully. But it's also important to kind of define what in-housing means, because in-housing means different things to different people. Um, to some people, uh, it means completely getting rid of your agency and building your own team in-house. And like I said, I don't think many brands have done that at a large scale successfully. Um, 
I think a lot of a lot of people just see that as bringing expertise back into the brand. You know, brands want to know where their money's going for going going towards, and if their investment is increasing from, you know. 10 years ago when when programmatic was just a slither it was kind of long tail where you sort of you know test and learn different things now it's grown so much that people want to know where their money's going so i think education is a really important part of this this sort of in-housing conversation and i think you should really you know people should really think twice when they see headlines of you know 80% of brands want to bring in house what that really means is 80% of brands or all brands want to know more about programmatic they want a seat at the table and we're seeing that a lot at the trade desk you know the evolution towards that sort of three-way conversation between the brand and the agency and and the tech partner and i think it's not only sort of a trend which we're seeing it's something we're trying to drive because it's so important that as an industry uh, we improve the eco space and that we we work really together so it's not brand versus agency agency versus tech it's it should be a sort of collaboration so working together to sort of maximize that is uh, is a really important goal for us so you've talked about knowledge and skills there and how the industry can can improve its its knowledge by bringing some of those uh, uh, tools and, and processes in-house. How else have you seen the needs of your customers evolve over the last few years? Well, what they're all trying to achieve hasn't changed for 100 years. You know, they're, they're, the, the fundamental thing is they're trying to reach customers and sell goods or services. That's not going to change, I don't think, uh, you know, going forward. So, you know, Avatars are blessed with far more data today. That's the difference. They've got a lot more data at their disposal. Um, but I think there's very few examples where they're using it really, really effectively. I think there's pockets of examples, but I think there's a lot of growth in this this area here. Really being able to understand audiences and better target those audiences more, you know, more effectively um, is really, really important. But then also being able to take insights from that, learn from it, and then iterate, and then and and then uh, continue to evolve that that um, that that strategy. So. The evolution to more data-driven advertising also means that addressing the right audience becomes a lot, a lot easier. Uh, it, it benefits all parties as well. It's not just about the advertiser selling goods. It's uh, The advertisers can reach our audiences more effectively through spaces, but they, that also means that the ad spaces become more valuable. Um, it means that if you're if the targeting is better, that means the space is more valuable, which means the publisher can effectively make more money through that. And the advertiser should be happy paying that correct value for that customer if they're getting effectiveness through that. That also results in a better environment for you. Users. If a user's on a publisher website where they're not being bombarded by rubbish advertising, they're having a, a, an experience where they're they're enjoying the free content in the open internet, and they're being shown prop, you know, goods and services which they're interested in purchasing. That's a good experience, and I think that's another reason why um, it's so important. This is a, a, a three-way, you know, maybe, maybe call it a four-way um, conversation between um, agencies and brands and technology companies and and the publishers because we want to improve the experience for the internet for. Everybody and make advertising actually something which is complementary to the experience rather than sometimes hindering. So talking about data, what do you think are the most valuable data sources that are being used to enhance campaigns at the moment? Well, 100% first-party data. You know, uh, brands are sitting on a gold mine. I mentioned that briefly earlier, but um, it, it's so important that that brands utilise that data better. Um, and you know, through companies like the Trade Desk, we we you can you can onboard that through us and you can comp you can extend those audiences through our data um, and you can also target those people through that data um the the what makes it really important is that we're an open eco space and i'm not just talking about the trade desk but just really sort of non-walled garden technologies um it's quite problematic for brands when 
they're giving their, their data all the time to, to, to walled gardens. Brand, brands aren't able to control or see how their data is being used. And on the open web, not only can first-party data be used to so its sort of full potential, but brands are able to gather sort of a, a really large amount of additional insights from that data. Um, I think they really need to question that, you know, brands are increasingly asking themselves, I think, should my first party data be smarter, you know, make myself smarter, make my company smarter, or should, or am I giving these walled gardens data to make them more smarter? And I think there's a clear answer to that. And I think data ownership um, for the brands is really, really important. Talking about first party data, um, inevitably, I think, leads to the question around what consents are in place. There's been a, a lot of talk uh, around the implications now of the GDPR and whether uh, brands are getting uh, accurate consent to be using the the data of their users, uh, first party data. Um, and I wonder whether you have a, a view on where we are with the, the effect which GDPR and other data privacy legislation is having on the industry uh, and whether we um, are heading towards what I've been calling a cookie winter. Yeah, I mean... GDPR was fun, wasn't it? <laughs> About a year and a half ago, it was, uh, you know, it was a bit of a mad dash. But I mean, we, GDPR is a, genuinely a, a really good step in the right direction. We're not there quite yet, but um, you know, there's you know, there's other, like you said, there's other things coming around the corner as well, like e-privacy and CCPA in the, in North America. But um, it is a good step in the right direction, and, for, and our increasingly sort of data-dominated industry, its its introduction was a good opportunity for businesses to really get under the skin of their own data, um, sort of processing activities and making sure that their processes and the way that they look after their data is squeaky clean. Um, and it goes all the way through the supply chain, as I said before, and making sure that everyone in the supply chain is transparent and accountable. Um, we take at the trade desk, we take consumer privacy very seriously, and you know, GDPR was. Um, you know, great for us because it was it already complemented our, our, our transparent approach um, to, to, to data ownership. So um, there's been a lot of hype about the death of the cookie. Like you said, the cookie winter, I think you said. But it's, it's really important to remember that cookies are only used in a small proportion of digital advertising. You know, browsers like Safari and Firefox obviously limit them. When you talk about mobile, they're, they, you know, they're not really prevalent at all because we're using, you know, device IDs. And there's lots of other channels which are cookie-less as well. So I think we'll see and are seeing the cookie, you know, not being completely dead, but being not the own the only source of truth. I think it would be a, a triangulation point among another part, different parts of data. The question is where, like, where do I reach my audience? The web is an important part, but there's also much more, like mobile apps, digital audio, and CTV and digital out of home. Loads of things that that, that are emerging um, really, really fast. And it's also important to remember that the vital role of cookie-driven advertising plays in enabling the access to the open web, um, like I said before. Um, the open web meaning just free content you know, it, and just allowing someone to take a little bit of anonymous information about you um, in the quid pro quo of the internet to be able to access free content is, uh, I think, a, a pretty good deal. Um, I'm not like, talking about, you know, obviously talking about wall gardens, obviously um, talking about Google. You know, they, they sincerely... They sincerely are interested in providing a good user experience, and um, and for that, cookies is really necessary, especially with their browser. It's the it's the obviously the market leader. Um, depending on what their solution will look like in the future, I, I wouldn't be surprised if other browsers might follow suit. You know, when they can see that that browsers with cookies have found a decent balance between privacy and and ways to serve relevant advertising, we might see a sort of swing back again. But the important thing is that. The cookie 10 years ago um, or 15, 16 years ago when, when paid search advertising started was the only source of truth. And uh, But now it's not. And now it's not as important. 
as their party cookies become limited then, as you were saying, what other options do advertisers have for identifying and targeting consumers? IDs become another big area, and I know the Trade Desk have created a unified ID. So how's that been going, and, and how much uptake has there been for that? Yeah, it's, it's been going well, and I'll start by explaining why we created the unified ID. So currently, when a web page opens, a couple of hundred different IDs launch, leading to a really complex kind of spider web of connections, it, and it creates a lot of inefficiencies in the open web. So because of that, it inevitably leads to cookie loss, which means um, advertisers are losing the ability to find their audiences basically um for the open internet for the open internet to have the same kind of accuracy as wall gardens this number of ids needs to massively reduce and that's why we made our idea available um on the open web and it's not a commercial product project um the trade desk uh, the trade desk id isn't something which we want people to compete over but we want people to collaborate on. So our ID is available free of charge. Um, like I said, the uptake has been really, really great. And it's the only way we can really effectively sort of challenge the dominance of the wall gardens and preserve the access of the, of the open internet. Um, you know, free content for all, you know, and the quid pro quo of the internet, um, giving a little bit of data back to be able to have all of that content. Um, the adoption rates have been really, really good so far. Our partners have seen some fantastic results, and I, I think it's been publicised. But Pubmatic's total match rate of cookieable impressions reached about 99.8% following the adoption of, their, of our unified ID. So it's going really, really well, and the uptake has been great, and I think it can only get better. How do you see uh, the, the market evolving, though? Because there's a number of different players out there uh, who have who've got different solutions. Is it that uh, publishers are maybe using... A number of different IDs and seeing which one wins or how is the market going to evolve do you think? Well I think it, it, like I said there's hundreds right now and we we don't think there should be one we don't think there should be the trade desk ID and nothing else we think there should be a handful um, I think then it's a lot easier to manage um, it, it creates a better experience for users and I think there's other solutions out there as well that are complementary that we are collaborating with too. Now looking at the way that media agencies work there's been a bit of a gulf between media planners who identify and come up with these great audience based on things like need state and empathy uh, and that sits in one side of the media agency and then on the other you have the activation of the, the trade desk who are buying uh, individuals and impressions and there seems to be a bit of a gulf being be, being able to sort of match and activate those great audiences um, because they just can't be found that easily um, and, and that's even with the, the system we, we've got at the moment how do you see that evolving and, and is there any technology that you know of that's that's bringing those together the, the thing that's changed is the access to the huge amounts of data you know um as i said before brands and agencies now have a lot of, uh, of data at their disposal but actually media planning has largely stayed the same i mean talking about my own personal experience when i back in agency land um it hasn't been that different. Um, the data data only really comes into the picture after the campaign has been planned and then launched, um, and we obviously we call that targeting. But I think it is starting to change um, as data can used already through the planning stage. There should always be a good sort of cooperation between humans and machines. We never think that technology completely should take over. The human media planners can still and should still build hypotheses and test and learn and work with clients um, on on uh, on different approaches based on previous campaigns. Um, and that's the best way of starting off. And then machines can take over and run simulations on on these hypotheses. Um, this is. Like, for example, our product, uh, the planner, we, we call it planner, simple. <laughs> it kind of says what it does, what it says on the tin. But 
uh, it finds the right audiences and channels and formats and price points and, and lots of other things to reach the budget and KPI goals. And then it's up to the human again to look and evaluate these different data-driven media plans. Once the media planner is happy, they can just click a button, then it becomes a campaign. It gets activated straight into our into our buying tool. Um, and what the, the great thing about that is that there's a plethora of data available within our platform. They can input their data into this. They can start campaigns already having made learnings and already having gained insights through that planning tool before spending a dollar. Um, so it's really exciting. We launched about a year ago and the adoption has been really, really good. Um, and it removes also the first week of frantic optimization and ch- chopping and changing of things um, because you're already hitting the ground running. Now, you talked about KPIs there, and I know that one of the challenges often in an agency is that there's a, a real uh, pressure to deliver a, uh, a high volume uh, KPI to show that they're actually doing stuff, they're spending budgets. But what that means is, of course, that there's not as much quality in that buy. Do you think that there is a movement now towards trying to find more quality audiences and, and maybe spending less, but get a, getting a better click-through rate, getting a, a much more effective uh, media buying strategy? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's, it, there's a way to go, but it has it has improved. I think there's a very big difference between price and value, and that's what data allows you to at least get insight into. But I think there are still a lot of ways that that, that planners buy on a on a volume basis, and there, you know, advertisers want to get reach, they want to get volume, and that can still be done with 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 um, better, more 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 targeted advertising at, at scale on premium uh, real estate, rather than just spending the lowest CPC or the lowest CTR to be able to get as many eyeballs as possible, because a lot of that that is wasted through programmatic. You can now at scale target people on premium inventory. Now, contextual is an area that I'm very passionate about, um, and it's something which actually I've heard a lot of talk at the conferences recently uh, here in London. I was at uh, Programmatic Punch uh, last week, and uh, hearing people talk about the sort of renaissance of contextual. Do you think that media buyers and publishers have grasped the opportunity of contextual yet? Yeah, definitely. I mean, obviously, it's not a new concept, but I think post-GDPR, publishers and media buyers seem to increasingly rely on on, uh, contextual advertising. Contextual targeting is a really good opportunity for brands in this kind of environment, um, but you know, it allows you to reach a pool of potential customers that might not otherwise have identified, you might have not have sort of noticed or identified without having to rely on insights around specific audiences. Um, you know, but it's important to understand that what what the benefits and limitations are of, of contextual advertising. Data-driven advertising can be a lot, you know, much more precise um, than, than pure contextual targeting. Targeting obviously targets a lot of a group of people based on the content um, of, of a page. Um, we find that in most cases, combinations of the both can be pretty potent, um, and we encourage our clients to use those. You know, you can set up campaigns alongside each other, contextual, non-contextual, um, test and learn, test them against each other. We, you know, we have no bias. Whatever works for that particular client's KPIs. But I definitely think that contextual's grown um, post GDPR. But I think it's important to make sure that you have a really good mix. And I think that's consistent with what I've heard as well uh, for on some of the stages there. The uh, you know publishers in, in particular are talking about um, whether they can sell, uh, or sorry, the challenge of being able to sell all of their inventory. Yes, contextual helps with a part of that, but there's a, a big bit which it can't yet help, and it's maybe that's a hybrid model of overlaying some contextual data on other uh, data sources. Moving 
away from sort of contextual now and thinking about the um, transparency we were talking about at the beginning we we were sort of saying that actually there's a need for greater transparency who do you think has the responsibility for addressing that everyone's like the whole industry um all the way from 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 technology companies to consumers um we need to work together to maintain these high standards i think i think brands um uh, on the programmatic side um need some education and we've been working very closely with brands and partnering with agencies and doing that um so they have just so they have the right questions to ask uh, of their partners to ensure that there's good practice but but ultimately it's everyone's shared responsibility um, to drive positive change in the industry. Um, we're contributing to this with our Media for, Human, hum, Media for Humankind campaign, and it really highlights the vital importance of online advertising to preserve just the broad diversity of media and voices and content and the open internet. And I know I've mentioned open internet a number of times so far on this uh, on this podcast, um, and it's, it's so important that the quid pro quo of the internet is, is maintained, and meaning that people uh, have understand the trade-off between between free content and and advertising and i think that's going really really well could you just explain a bit more about open internet uh, as a sort of initiative almost because it's one of those things that um there has been a, a bit of press over the last couple of years of individuals consumers getting a bit sick of advertising you know ad blocker rates i know they've sort of leveled off now around 25 27 percent um, of audiences it's a lot higher in certain younger demographics that's the one indication that consumers are a bit sick of advertising and they don't sort of buy into this this concept of the open internet um and you see at the other end you know mozilla uh, with uh, everything they're doing with um uh, the, the basic attention token uh, and brave you know and this, that's another sort of empowerment of consumers effectively saying that maybe they don't want to buy into the open internet or that they think it should be more on their terms. So could you just expand on, on what your or how you see the open internet um, evolving and, and the, what the consumers think of it? There's been great progress over the last few years uh, as an industry. We need to do more. I think it's it's a, it's a good start, but we need to continue cleaning up the supply chain uh, and applying emerging tech, you know, owned and operated tech and third-party tech in advertising to improve relevance um, while protecting consumer privacy. There's a fine balance there um, and provide greater control for consumers uh, to create more reliable and profitable revenue streams. And like you said, the, you know, there's there are still experiences that you have online or connected TV or whatever it might be where you see the same ad over and over and over again. And that's not good advertising. That's not a good consumer experience. And that's going to be improved by data. And the goal must be to power the sort of marketplace of ideas, which is the digital space. And when we find ways to deliver relevant advertising, while at the same time preserving users' privacy, then the online experience can be better for everybody. And publishers can earn more money because their ad space has become a lot more valuable to advertisers. That way they can continue to finance great content. All the way, you know, and all we want is then is then publishers to actually publishers might even revert to back towards showing less ads. You know, if they're making more money through better quality, we might see less ads, and that actually creates a better user experience as well, um, because each rele- each relevant ad will earn them more money, and the advertiser is still happy because they're not wasting money and they're they're having much more effective advertising. And then all the way down to the users, they're not always, not only enjoying the quality free content, but they're also they get to show more, you know, more relevant advertising to something they're actually interested. But the whole key to all, all of this is that is objectivity. Objectivity is really, really key. If a company's operating across the supply chain, 
i.e. if they own a DSP and an SSP and an ad server, then spend becomes just inherently biased towards the detriment of the of the advertising campaign. And tech companies shouldn't be both the sort of player and referee, which is a well, well-trodden quote, but it's so true. Um, it's why we operate just exclusively on the buy side, as I said before. We don't have any interest in, interest in other parties. We don't have any of our own and operated inventory. And we just purely focus on the campaign objectives. And what that enables us to do is look at potential ad opportunities. So we see about 10 million uh, opportunities per second, uh, QPS queries per second, which is a lot. You know, the internet's a big place and, and that's growing very, very fast. And then we get the option to decide, you know, um, which which advertisers should be placed on, on, on in which in which space. Data tells us where, you know, five to 20 ads per second are likely to help reach that advertiser's KPIs. And because we only serve on the buy side, we can be really, really transparent um, about the way that we work. There's no hidden agenda and no hidden fees. Great. So you're actually seeing um, that advertisers are demanding more quality. I think you said saying like fewer, better ads. Um, is that a trend you're seeing more now? Yeah, but there's a lot of work to be done. Like I said, I think uh, there's still a mentality um, of cost versus value. Um, and cost is usually chosen over value. And I think we as an industry, as a, as, a, as a whole, need to push value much harder than cost. Just because something's more expensive doesn't mean it's not as good. Um, if you're if you're showing someone a hyper-relevant ad on, on a connected television, it's going to be, uh, and it's obviously going to be more expensive than a banner uh, on, on Facebook. It's, uh, it's, it's going to be more effective and it's going to be more expensive. So that, that sort of trade-off between cost and value is a continued education piece. And that's going to be done through through chat, through conversation, through education, through better planning, through, you know, data-driven planning, through effective campaigns um, and just education in general. And yeah, we are seeing a trend towards it, but I think there's a long way to go. We know that the market is dominated quite heavily by Google and Facebook. Uh, they still control uh, the majority of the, the online ad spend. It's often a, a go-to place for an advertiser. They, they'll think, well, I, you know, I know I can reach people here. Do you see that as an inevitable part of the market for at least the next decade, or is that changing in it in any way? No, not. I mean, not not at all. I think it's being challenged all the time. And you know, I, imagine if I said yes, <laughs> I'd just pack up my bags and go home. But <laughs> but but right now, a lot of spend goes to the wall gardens. A, a, a disproportionate amount of spend. You know, if you think about it, you know. Facebook and Google are a couple of websites. You've got YouTube and well, and their network and, and Facebook. Um, because they offer sophisticated targeting capabilities and they make it really, really easy for advertisers to buy from them, um, you, you know, you can understand why. But growing numbers of advertisers are waking up to the importance of objectivity, of, of independence. And when it comes to advertising and the benefits of investing, spend beyond the ward gardens, whether that's greater control of data, more transparent pricing, more objective measurement. I think it's, it's really, really important. And beyond this, the industry is beginning to appreciate just how important advertising on the open web is for society in general. I know it sounds grand, but to preserve the, and sort of fuel the content required to be able to educate and inspire and entertain people, it's really important that it is objective, that it's not just driving, um, you know, uh, a, a bad a bad internet experience. Um, and there is a misconception that wall gardens have, their, have the largest reach. It's not not true. The trade desk alone reaches one billion more people than the wall gardens, um, and on the open internet. Open internet, like I said, 
I'm being slightly flippant, but the Google and Facebook are a couple of websites and um, the internet is a big, big place um, and we can target 1 billion more people than them. And, you know, that's that's pretty powerful. That's a, a good stat. And I, and I think, yeah, that's, that's right. It comes back to some of the topics we were discussing before in terms of you have the reach there and if you can overlay the data-driven insights, contextual insights, all of those things to really enrich it, then you can provide a, a much more... Uh, a much higher level of quality for that ad placement um, to be effective, and and brands brands are really starting to see this as well. Like, you know, especially the large brands, you know, who who have experienced the effectiveness of programmatic. They prioritise the open web, and and Wall Gardens inventory is a sort of complement their campaigns rather than the other way around as that it has been for the last ten years. Um, I think we're really seeing a switch of that, and uh, it's it's really exciting. We've started to see publishers really um, take some initiatives. You know, they're building consortiums, but they also seem to be building ad platforms now as well. Um, um, is that something which you think is going to become more um, prevalent in, over the next couple of years, uh, publishers managing their own programmatic? I don't know. I'm not sure, really. I think, yeah, I mean, definitely there's a, there's a grow in the consortiums, and that's that's great. That's great for the industry. You know, uh, as a group, um, they have better buy, you know, buying or selling power than, than on their own, and, and that's great. And publishers need to be able to earn money if they're delivering good content. But... We're seeing growing trends, trends really on the te- on the tech side, on the publisher side. We're seeing growing trends towards sort of supply path optimization, optimization, in which many publishers are sort of building their own platforms to increase the transparency of the supply chain, which again is fantastic, and just ensuring that they maximise revenue for through inventory. Yeah, and I think that's quality uh, inventory is, is a major. Uh, issue and there's a whole bunch of initiatives there in fact we've got a, another episode which is just looking at um, inventory there so I wanted to now sort of maybe turn to the future and ask you how you think m- media buying will have changed by 2025 yeah when, when, when 2025 seems so far away but it's uh, it's actually five years away which is crazy but we, we already we're already seeing really a big impact on how and on data, like how, how that's affected our industry, and it's only set to increase. I've, I've mentioned data a few times, but it's so important. It's what programmatic is built on. Um, machine learning and AI will be really important to enabling advertisers to derive sort of smart and actual insights through this data. Um, and we're really excited about developing our technology to make this even smarter. Um, We'll also, I think we'll see brands start to take more of a global approach. I think that's really important. There's a lot of brands, most brands work in silos. We're already seeing a um, trend towards kind of more of a global planning and buying approach rather than a local strategy, which is sort of stitched together. Um, and technology makes that a lot, lot easier um, uh, than ever before to be able to share information across the globe in, in real time. On a macro level, I think the word programmatic will probably just disappear. Like the vast majority of digital ads will be and are being transacted sort of programmatically and it'll just be the new normal so programmatic as a word probably will just go away um just one system through which you can reach your, your audiences through channels like you know tv audio web etc but also oh in-app gaming is, is really exciting and a digital out of home but we'll probably see new channels like screens with cars uh, you know, trains, planes, automobiles, ad placements in augment, augmented reality and VR. Virtual reality is really, really interesting. Um, I was in Waterloo Station last week and there's a there's an augmented reality board. We walk past it and it targets a group of people and then shows them an ad and they're actually part of that ad. I mean, you know, that's kind of a novelty at the moment, but it's going to get a lot more targeted, a lot more interesting and a lot more sort of a better user experience. But, you know, exciting things like that are still coming around the corner. So I was going to ask you, 
what emerging technology you were, you were most excited about, but I think you could have covered it off. Well, one of the things I didn't talk about was, you know, connected television. That's, 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 it's not emerging because it's already there and, and the trade desk has been working on that for a couple of years but it's still emerging in the sense of um, fragmentation from from linear television sort of programmatic te- technology can sort of transform tv um, and it's only really sort of started um tv is only going to get more sophisticated um, and it's really exciting to see how advertisers are sort of moving from the traditional 30 second ad spot to using kind of product placement things like that uh, branded content um, it, within within content and uh, and brands should be just as excited about it as we are it's, it's a it's a sort of slight misconception that you're just targeting one audience that has come off linear and into digital. There's also a huge emerging uh, group of, of young people who have never had linear television. It's a new audience which advertisers should be advertising to. You know, one of the biggest challenges in advertising is not just targeting the people who buy your product. It's also finding that next generation of people who are going to buy your product. And, and I think connected television is a really important part of that. So the ability to target data-driven sort of run frequency capping along across multiple channels including television across and also the ability of measuring the impact of ctv across all those other channels i just mentioned that is you know a game changer and something we're pushing really really hard at the trade desk it must be a very fragmented space though because you have all these new players all these new formats all these new devices coming on um we call it connected tv but actually it's it's very fragmented how do you deal with that fragmentation when you're trying to um, help advertisers to buy media across that huge fragmented market yeah it's 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 hard but um but it's it's only the beginning and if you think you know 10 years ago on the display side it was exactly the same you know uh, um there's lots and lots of companies trying to monetize their real estate and um they're going to some of them are going to try their own solutions some are going to partner with us some are going to try their solutions and then fail and then partner with us and that fragmentation is going to continue to happen so it's just a it's just a a cycle uh you know a 10-year cycle i think there are companies who are going to, you know, create a new walled gardens. You think about, you know, companies like Disney, and then you also think about companies like Netflix, who are very against advertising, but getting pressured and pressured and pressured all the time to move that towards that model. Um, it's just an ongoing cycle. I think it's really exciting. There's lots and lots of new players coming into the market. We've been talking to, you know, globally, uh, some some huge. Um, huge supply sources on the on the traditional linear side and we've convinced many of them to test and learn and then grow um grow our supply side into into um interconnected television so it's an ongoing thing it's again education it's about testing and learning it's making sure that they're getting the best bang for their buck and everyone in the supply chain is doing is doing the same um it's not just about trying to get rid of linear television it's trying to make linear television more accept- more accessible and and more effective fantastic yeah and we're looking forward to seeing how connected television does evolve as a as a really powerful media you know in the past it's been so powerful so james we're gonna have to start to wrap things up there um it's been great to, to get your views across so many areas we really sort of understand a lot more now i think about how that data-driven marketing uh, is being powered by a wave of, of new data and how it's kind of rising to some of the challenges in, in the industry. Um, I, I wonder, as we just sort of wrap things up, could you tell us about uh, how we can follow what's happening at the Trade Desk, how we can stay in touch with uh, anything, any of the campaigns you're working on there? Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I mentioned our Media for Humankind campaign that's going to be coming everyone's way very, very soon and it's already launched. Um, I don't use social media myself because I'm a bit of a dinosaur, but um, I don't know, uh, carry a pigeon or smoke signal or something like that. But uh, I'm on LinkedIn. 
Um, I guess that is a kind of social media. Um, you can access everything through the Trade Desk website. We're very active within, uh, you know, within the sort of circuit of, uh, of, of panels and things. And, you know, we want to be um, an independent part of, of, of the evolution of programmatic we want we want to be part of it but we also want to help educate other people to be part of it but um yeah no I, i've really enjoyed chatting with you and i think there's there's really exciting things ahead and um uh you know it's uh, it's only really just started that's what's a really exciting thing absolutely there's so much potential ahead and it's great to hear you uh giving so much advice and talking about the industry uh, and i think it really underlines that point you're making about you know the mission uh, to try and help the industry um, by education become more transparent uh, so thank you very much for your time today on the podcast talking about all those different uh, parts of the industry thank you thank you very much and i think this is going out in january so happy new year thanks very much find more episodes at clickzy.com forward slash podcasts or follow me on twitter at tim for change we'll be talking to more of our experts over the next few weeks until then keep up to date with click z and don't forget to review us on itunes and stitcher click z the original digital business intelligence company founded in 1997 providing best practice advice trends and insight from leading analysts and practitioners to a global community of more than 300,000 digital marketing and e-commerce professionals thank you for listening and bye for now